Hello, and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your host, Rose Venon, and this week we will explore the transformation of the media environment in the past decade and its potential effect on the political cycle. It is undeniable that the advent of the digital age, with internet, social media, and smartphone usage, has changed the media landscape. What remains open to question is the effect this has had on politics, electoral campaigns, voter choice, elected officials' behavior, and communication strategies. To learn more about this issue, I spoke to Dr. Rasmus Klein-Nielsen, Director of Research at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, Colin Byrne, CEO of UK and EMEA for Weber Shanvik, a leading global public relations firm and previously head of press for the Labour Party, and Helen Lewis, Deputy Editor of the New Statesman. In this podcast, you will hear pieced together excerpts from these interviews, which we will turn to now. I first asked Dr. Nielsen what he thinks the most notable development in the media landscape has been. In high-income democracies, the biggest change has been the explosive growth of digital media and the way in which digital media has continuously evolved in ways that, that means that this is sort of a, an unfinished and ongoing revolution in how people get information and engage with the world using media. So you've seen not only sort of the quick growth in internet use, but also the evolution of how we use the internet with the rise of smartphones, the ways in which we navigate information with the rise of search engines and social media. So that is the one absolutely central change. Even within the world, the sort of relatively similar high-income democracies, there are huge contextual differences in how these things are playing out. I mean, you can just start with the media, for example. The difference between the American media environment and then most Western European media environments is huge. The American media environment is totally commercialized, much more fragmented in a very, very big country with predominantly regional and local media rather than national media, whereas in Europe you have public service media and still some strong private commercial media that still tie together a national media scene to a much larger extent. So the media environment is quite different. What we see across the country, we cover in the research that I'm part of doing here at Oxford, is that basically the bigger the crisis in legacy media, mainstream news media, in terms of their business, but also in terms of people's trust in news, the bigger the crisis there, the more important social media are. So this is the case in the US, where the crisis in journalism and news media is much more pronounced than this in Northwestern Europe and the crisis of confidence between news institutions and the population. But it's very much also the case in Southern Europe. So if you go to Greece, if you go to Italy, if you go to Spain, if you go to Portugal, in these markets, actually social media is even more important than it is in the US because the crisis in journalism there is more pronounced and because the crisis of confidence is more pronounced. In terms of what has happened to that media output, I think the, the best way probably to summarize is to say that there is a, a sort of a polarization where best in-depth, fact-oriented, sort of detailed reporting today is better than it's ever been. If you are interested in, say, climate change, the information that you had available around the Paris summit and negotiations last year were far more detailed far more contextualized, far more easily accessible for you as a user than the information you would have had access to if you had been following the same process in the run-up to the Tokyo summit in the past. So the best journalism, if you will, and, and you can think of, of ne- many other issues in which this is the case, if you think about reporting on the Eurozone crisis, if you think about reporting on immigration across Europe, if you think about reporting on the U.S. presidential election, that there are many issues in which the, the best reporting today is better, not only more easily accessible for users, but also qualitatively better in almost any in any sort of way. The flip side of that is that there is also, at the same time, an explosive growth in very sort of short-form journalism that is produced by journalists with very limited time and resources available that is heavily reliant on press releases, that is heavily reliant on 
recycling statements made by sources, former citizens on social media, where journalists are churning out a very high number of stories with very little time in ways that at best provide sort of an ephemeral sense, real-time sense of things going on in politics. And at worst, it's sort of superficial, distracting noise. So that's not a criticism of any of the individuals involved in it. They do it because that's their job, and these are the conditions under which they work. But as a citizen, this is a, there is a quite a, a lot of quite frothy information out there that circulates in social media, but much of it is also produced by news organizations. I think that big changes have been 24-hour internet news, the rise of social media, the rise of audiences that talk back to you constantly in real time, you know, comment sections and, and social media feeds. And now the dominance of social media streams of Facebook and Google in, in delivering you traffic. This is Helen Lewis, deputy editor of the New Statesman. In about 2007, when Twitter became, I think I joined Twitter pretty early on, about June 2007, it didn't really become a massive news gathering tool until I would say the Hudson. River plane crash, you know, that was the moment that people really realised that there are now going to be situations in which we're going to be getting photographs of natural disasters or accidents from readers and people are going to be their first way that they'll find stuff out will be through a social media network not through us you know and now facebook twitter and google are you know our three biggest sources of traffic from from outside us and that's something you have to to deal with and one of the things that I'm very keen to talk about at the moment and find out more about and get more people's opinions on is the way in which actually do, are those social media companies social media companies or are they now essentially actually media companies and I, and I would argue quite strongly that that Facebook and Twitter are now media companies and they are making the money that perhaps the media companies might have made but they're taking their big slice of it before it gets to anyone else further down the food chain. I next asked whether these changes have affected electoral campaigns and more precisely candidate strategies when running for office. And they've definitely changed. The one that everybody talks about is the Obama 08 campaign and how successful that was as a digital campaign. That managed to energise a lot of people into voting and actually getting out people who are traditionally groups that vote in fewer numbers and also galvanising a huge amount of very small donations. And I went out campaigning to write a piece about the Labour Party at the last election and they were still kind of talking about these systems that, that the Obama campaign had got their own version of it called Contact Create. All the information that you can now have about voters that you can really apply big data principles to to campaigning. So yeah, I, I think there have been enormous changes. The other thing is things like Facebook or YouTube adverts are really interesting. So the Conservative Party spent an enormous amount at the last election on targeted YouTube adverts. So the great or the terrible thing about internet advertising, depending on your point of view, is that you can really personalise it. And so much like if you live in America and you live in a swing state, your experience of an election is very different to if you live in New York or somewhere that's going to be everyone's it was always voted the same way. You can almost kind of forget there's an election on whereas if you live in a swing state you're bombarded with ads all the time the same thing i think happened with youtube ads some people just getting a lot and actually the future of campaigning is far more underground in the sense it, it won't get seen by the media often things won't get unearthed they will only be seen by the kind of people that they're targeted at because they will be internet you know rather than physical pieces of paper so there have been huge sweeping changes to particularly how political campaigns are run as politicians realize that the media environment is becoming much more fragmented that the ability of most politicians to convey their message using the news media and actually reaching the audience that they are trying to reach is limited, particularly if you're not a very highly placed politician. They have 
turn to these seemingly old-fashioned forms of communication to essentially try to circumvent the news media. It's one of several ways in which you can try to get your message out without relying on the news media as an intermediary institution that mediate your message. So from the 90s onwards, American campaigns have invested enormous amounts of money and time and effort into building up their capacity to contact people by building up volunteer networks, by investing in targeting technology for building databases and, and tools to enable campaigns to more effectively target voters that can be turned out to vote and mobilized to vote or perhaps persuaded to vote differently than they otherwise would. And this is very much a response to these developments in the media and the way in which news is becoming a harder and harder channel for most politicians to use to try to influence voters. Linked to the discussion about candidate strategies, Colin Byrne provided an outlook on the behavior of voters during campaigns and on election day. Platforms like Twitter and Facebook, etc., are very good for engagement, two-way engagement, rather than just passively consuming uh, news and views. I think the main takeaway in terms of looking at media, social media, etc., in the 2015 general election was that social media was certainly adopted on a massive scale. 47 million tweets on the election sent out in the six weeks before polling day. But only 7% of people actually said social media influenced the way they actually voted. So I think there was a lot of noise on social media. But in terms of what actually impacted the way people voted, it was still more traditional media, particularly broadcast media. I think most politicians and pundits like me still see a big difference between the scale of use of social media and the actual impact on the end result. And let's face it, the end result in an election is you either win or lose the election. We've still got a first-past-the-post system. We've still got a conservative government. For all the radicalism that is sweeping the internet and for all this you know, energy, Jeremy Corbyn will still find it very difficult to get elected. You know, Bernie Sanders is three million votes behind Hillary Clinton. So it doesn't necessarily always translate that kind of feeling online that you get about politics into actual votes and actual structural change. So although it may be hard to know the actual impact of media changes on electoral outcomes, Helen Lewis still argued that increased internet and social media consumption has influenced citizens' behaviour. There's a really interesting thing inside you about filter bubbles and about Google kind of serving you more stuff like stuff you've already expressed an interest in. We Facebook friends are relatively likely to be from the same vague ideological persuasion and social class age demographic as you. If you're a radical green voter who lives in a squat in Brighton, you're not going to see a lot of UKIPI content. If you're a very conservative Republican who lives in Texas, on your Facebook you're unlikely to see a lot of stuff about how brilliant abortion rights and gay marriage are and I think that's a really interesting facet of we don't really have a kind of mass media anymore we have a mid-range media I'd guess plus a lot of very highly personalized media for people through social media I think it's it's driven the rise of populism in a way because I think what happens is that people see that everybody around them it creates this illusion of ubiquity so people see well like everybody on my Facebook feed everybody on my Twitter feed for example loves Bernie Sanders and then it becomes hard then to deal with the idea that, well, but actually he hasn't got the kind of right number of votes. And you're kind of like, but we all but we all support him. And you're like, I see so much support from here. And I have people who talk to me on, on Twitter and say, lots of people I know are really excited about Jeremy Corbyn. And I kind of go, well, 
are you excited about Jeremy Corbyn? They go, yes. And they go, well, you, and you're probably, you're hanging around with people that are like you, right? You, you've got shared interests in common, and one of those is Jeremy Corbyn. You're not hanging around with retired plumbers in Grimsby if you're a advertising executive who works in Shoreditch. And I think that becomes difficult for people because for political campaign, people throw their heart and soul into some kind of campaign or petition or something like that or a march or something like that. And, and, and it feels like everybody's up for it and really interested in it. And then nothing happens. And I think that can be a really alienating experience for people. And I bet, again, can make people feel that the political process is, is ultimately pointless because don't see why what they're doing is not having an effect. In this context, I ask what role traditional forms of media currently play in elections. Looking at the most recent example of the 2015 general election, just 12 months ago, in the wake of that election, voters were polled as to what most influenced their decision how to vote as opposed to were they aware of the election. They were asked how what influenced you actually voting and how you voted. And almost a third said television, radio, broadcast media, set-piece interviews, set-piece debates. Almost uh, one in three cited that as the most influential. Only 10% cited print media. I think it's still the case that TV... Big set-piece events like debates and key uh, party leader interviews are very, very influential. I think print media has always been seen as more partial because it's not subject to the same scrutiny and regulation for political bias as broadcast media. So I think people kind of take it with a pinch of salt anyway, which is why probably it only rated about 10% in terms of uh, influence on voting intentions. I mean, I was involved in the 92 election where the Sun famously claimed it was the Sun what won it and I think probably that was more true then than it is today because today a lot of people are not buying brands like the Sun if they do buy them they don't tend to buy them for their insights into politics it may have an impact in the view you take of politics but I don't think it's decisive anymore in terms of almost dictating the way you vote. Uh, There is a diversification of sources. The stranglehold that things like print media uh, traditionally had, where virtually everybody bought a newspaper decades ago, and it kind of defined your social class, whether you were a Sun reader or a Times reader or a Telegraph reader. It it almost defined your social group. It was like a badge of the social group you represented. All that is gone. Dr. Nielsen and Helen Lewis also provided their insight on the effect of this accelerated news cycle on politicians once in office. They were both cautious with regards to impact on actual policy making. Most top politicians feel this pressure for media attention very, very acutely and and I think has reacted from the 90s onwards in particular by professionalizing their press relations, their media relations, and on focusing a lot on message control and on using all available tools to try to control the narrative. And they don't feel that they do this which leads them to try even harder to do it, if you will, whether that is through the use of various forms of special advisors, the uh, use of privileged journalists who get the information before others, and other ways of controlling the narrative. So many politicians feel that they are losing control of the narrative and that they are under immense pressure from journalists. I mean, it's very clear that part of controlling a narrative is timeliness, uh, and that will, in some instances, lead to politicians having to react almost instantaneously to events, at least to 
get a first message out there. The degree to which politicians are able to remain in control, even in this accelerated news cycle, depends an awful lot on their position and their authority. So if you are the prime minister or if you are the president, it will be newsworthy what you say, even if what you say is, I will say more later. So there are still situations in which you can play for time and, and have some sort of deliberation internally with your advisors and with your political colleagues before you make a big political commitment. But it's clear that there is real pressure of time and it is very clear that, that politicians can't get away with not saying anything for a long time if they want to shape the narrative and get involved. If you are a less uh, senior politician, if you're less um, high up the hierarchy, if you will, essentially I think this, the dynamics is a little bit different in the sense that people are chasing attention because this is in their self-interest. They want to advance the principles that they stand for. They want to advance the interests that they claim to, that they aim to represent. And one way to do this is to get some media attention. So you see enormous amounts of younger politicians, more or less senior politicians, who are trying to jump on every story by commenting very quickly on it and providing sort of quotable snippets in the hope of getting media attention and perhaps getting invited on television. In this situation, one should not confuse attention with influence. The ability of some politicians to get quoted or get on television does not mean that they actually have any influence on the policies being developed. That is still primarily done by more senior politicians working with close advisors in the civil service and elsewhere. It's worth underlining that as sort of keenly as politicians and, and higher level civil servants feel the pressure of media attention and as reliant as we as citizens are on media and news for getting information about public affairs, that much of political life is quite distant from media attention. Media attention tends to focus uh, primarily on a limited number of leading politicians, a limited number of high visibility political issues and stories, and is very sort of event-oriented and a little bit less concerned with covering slow burn incremental policy reforms that tend to play out in semi-private settings with involving civil servants, involving politicians, involving interest groups and lobbyists of various sorts, and that many really, really important things in politics take place quite far away from media attention. I think it's a lot harder now to run a media grid for politicians. The thing is now you can't control access, you can't control what the press is seeing unless you keep your candidate or politician in a kind of pen then there are always things happening and those things will always be caught on video so I think that does that does change things but I have difficulty because actually institutions do seem incredibly resilient to change and, and actually power functions very much like that you know the status quo is incredibly powerful as a certain inertia it's often easy to overstate how dramatically new technologies change that and that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week if you would like to hear the full, original interviews for each of our guests, the links are in the description of the podcast. If you want to share your own thoughts on this topic, we are always accepting submissions to our blog at irsoft.com. Thank you to all of our guests, to our sponsor Morgan Stanley, and to podcastthemes.com for the intro and outro music. And thank you for tuning in this week. Until next time.